0: Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Welcome back to Hunting, Shooting, Fishing, in my previous section, I talked about Baira and the seedy side of life on the East African coast. This section's going to be completely different. It's all about hunting camps down on the Zambezi River. I've already said this before, but I don't take any particular pleasure in blood sports, despite growing up in a hunting family. But I'm not criticizing people who enjoy organized legal hunting. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but maybe just listen to this episode and make your own mind up. You need to bear in mind that the stories I'm telling you were based in the 1950s, the 60s and even the 70s, and it wasn't as divisive as it is nowadays. While I wouldn't call hunting camp holidays common practice, gosh, they were actually rather rare, It certainly wasn't the exclusive and, if I may say, distasteful realm as seen on social media today. Shooting a lion from the back of a Land Rover, this was not. This was man versus beast. Byra was amazing, but without a doubt the best holidays were always the trips made down to the Zambezi Valley, or the Veli, as my dad's great pal Ben Norton used to call it in his broad South African accent. We were often invited to join our fathers at their annual hunting camps along the river. Most of the white school kids went to South Africa and Mozambique, and the lucky few to London returning laden with goodies never seen in Rhodesia, such as Quality Streets and Black Magic Chocolates and Wrangler Jeans. But we never really felt jealous. We knew that what we had was unique. In fact, now that it's all gone, those wondrous weeks spent on those camping trips are even more precious. The hunting camps were allocated by auction and you might get anything from A, B or C camp, which was upriver of the small town called Chirundu. Or D camp down to K camp, right at the bottom of the valley. All camps were on the river, situated under the shade of the huge leafy sausage trees whose massive phallic pods could kill a grown man should they fall on his head. The Zambezi River is a quick route from the center of the continent down to the Indian Ocean. Tamarind trees also grew in abundance along the river. Indigenous to tropical Africa, not India as the Latin name suggests. It was believed they had been brought down from Central Africa by Arab slave traders. The fruit is used to add sour notes to Sri Lankan fish curries, but in Rhodesia, the closest we ever got to curry was powder from a packet, sprinkled with desiccated coconut and raisins. Without these riverine trees, few people could have withstood the constant onslaught of the unrelenting Zambezi sun. All camps were stocked with plenty of grog and an overabundance of food, but still it was extremely rough and ready. They were definitely not the romantic, out of Africa, posh safari style camps of the Kenya set. Don't get me wrong, we always traveled with a circus of servants and nannies and truckloads of fabulous produce, but no one had tents or smart khaki safari outfits run up by an Indian tailor in downtown Nairobi. At these camps, we just slept under the African stars with, well, if you were lucky, a flimsy mozzy net to protect you against wild animals. In their own way, these camps were spectacular for the very fact that they were pared back and raw. As many as 15 or 20 people might turn up, and as many servants, plus scores of kids and hangers-on, Often, there was only one long drop as a toilet and one zinc tub to bathe in. Generally, the camp only had two official hunters, always with a bag of big game. The national parks had an auction each year by allocating each camp along the river with a bag of animals. Some camps might have a bag with big game and antelope, while others might simply have a bag of fowl and fish. Hunters would bid for the camps depending on what they were prepared to pay. Back then, the bags were not only exotic, but also rather large, what with game such as elephant, buffalo, rhino, hippo and antelope of all varieties, and for the pot, as many guinea fowl and partridges as one could shoot. With all the hunting, untidy piles of tusks would be heaped under a tree, the odd hippo skulls or rows of buffalo trophies drying in the sun, their skins pegged out neatly and salted. It must seem strange. In fact, it must disgust many people now, as indeed it does me. But in the 1960s no one thought much about shooting an elephant or a rhino. Game roamed all over the Zambezi Valley and was plentiful. Rangers ensured that the hunters stuck to what was in their bag. If you wounded an animal and could not track it down, you were not allowed to shoot another. It was, and still is to a degree, strictly controlled. So morality aside, It is believed that more elephant roamed the Zambezi Valley in the 1960s than in the turn of the century. Getting to the hunting camps was as much of an adventure as being there. As you wind around the Makuti Hills, you are met with a sight that is difficult to forget, the Zambezi Escarpment. Rounding around the many hairpin bends, trying to ignore the treacherous drop of a few hundred feet below, you're greeted first by the unusual aroma of the potato tree, the scent delicious as a roasting potato, and then visually by the massive flat expanse of the middle Zambezi Valley, stretching from Kariba Gorge in the far eastern side all the way to the Kaborabasa Basin in Mozambique. In the 1960s, these camps were quite untamed, the kids all kipping down in a row at the far end of the camp, falling asleep snug in our sleeping bags while listening to the hysterical laughter of hyenas or the low grunt of a male lion. and dreamily watching shooting stars skitter past the Southern Cross. Oh, it was magical. Out of earshot, the parents would carouse and tell hunting stories, rail hunting stories, around a roaring campfire, as they were served canapes or goujons of bream, or kudu sweetbreads on Melba toast. The grog would flow, and one wonders what they could have done to protect us children, should a wild animal have come into camp, as often the wild animals did. The Zambezi camps attracted many night predators. When an animal such as a buffalo had been shot, it was hauled back to the camp on a Land Rover, hung up with a block and tackle, and gutted and skinned. As kids, we loved watching this, squeezing our nose when the intestinal sac was pierced and the green shit spilled out onto the ground. It was a busy day for dung beetles, scuttling busily across the dirt. Measuring the trophies, weighing the tusks, admiring the beautiful, subtle colours of a reed buckskin or the coarse, prickly hair of a water buck. There is a photo of me standing inside the hollowed-out foot of an elephant, surrounded by hunting trophies, and I'm bawling my eyes out. These elephant feet were used as coffee tables or even litter bins. Meat from antelope and buffalo was cut into strips for biltong and placed into zinc tubs of brine for a day or so, then spiced with herbs and ground coriander and hung up to dry in long lines. Biltong was the Rhodesian's favorite snack, always eaten with a beer. All the blood and guts made these camps a magnet for scavengers. A boneyard was always established a few hundred yards out of camp where the hyenas and jackals would squabble and fight over the carrion all night long, cackling and whooping like mad fishwives. Over the years, the boneyards would become littered with the eerily white skulls of elephant, buffalo and impala, trophies too small or considered unworthy of taking home. But it was the rib cages and massive femurs that stick in my mind like a battlefield in a Tolkien epic, which I suppose it was, really, man versus beast. At night, the skulls and hip bones and ribs would glow in the moonlight like unearthly fairy kingdoms. During the hunting season, the fresh offal also attracted lions and leopards. It wasn't unusual for lion or leopard spoor to be seen in the sand between our camp beds in the mornings as they sniffed out the rows of biltong, rarely bothering us, but still a little bit close for comfort. One intrepid leopard managed to reach the drying meat, and spent the night quietly eating the strips of biltong, spitting out the metal clips used to hang it up. In the morning, we were staggered to see these small little neat piles of clips below the now empty line of meat. Never ones to waste, we picked them up and used them again for the next batch of biltong. One particular year, the boneyard had been situated a little too close to the camp and the hyena became a menace, skulking on the periphery of the camp at night. Long before the days of National Geographic or Attenborough, we had little idea that these beasts were as predatory and dangerous as lions. One night, while sitting around the fire, someone pointed to the row of sleeping kids at the edge of the camp. My God, Libby, look, a hyena. I I think it's sniffing Pete's head. Sure enough, a massive hyena with jaws that could crush a skull like an egg was inches from my slumbering head. Oh, go away, foot sack, shoo, shoo, the adults gesticulated. (laughs) The hyena shrank guiltily back into the shadows like Shylock, seeking out his pound of flesh. The old folks casually went back to their drinks, laughing at the incident. That particular year was the worst I can remember for hyenas. They were everywhere around the camp, their hunched, sinister shadows flitting between the thorn bush and the mapani trees, casting long, ghost-like shadows in the moonlight. One night, my sister Mandy and I wanted to have a pee. Now, the loos were basic long drops with a flimsy hessian fence around them for privacy rather than safety. The other kids had gone to sleep, so Mandy and I tiptoed the 100 yards or so along the dark path in the pitch black to the long drop. While Mandy was sitting on the can, we heard a movement outside. A scuffling, a snuffling, a large dark shadow and then the inevitable, terrifying, high-pitched giggle. The sloped form of a huge hyena appeared, slinking (laughs) along like a large slavering dog. The nape of its neck, a shag of spiky hair, its slobbering faces, inches from the two of us, peering through the gaps in the hessian fence. It looked very hungry. Around and around it walked, trying to find a way in. We were perfect morsels for this animal. Absolutely petrified, we sat rigid on the lavatory, not daring to move. I was only five and Mandy was seven years old. Incredibly, we never screamed out. That was simply not done in those days. The adults would think us sissy and honestly, who would have heard us? The two of us made a dash for it through the bush and into our sleeping bags and the safety of the distant murmur of a couple of die-hard adults still drinking bowls brandy around the glowing embers of the fire back at school during the show and tell when other kids talked about their holidays and their experiences on the beach or trout fishing in the eastern highlands i was sent into the corner for telling fibs about such an idiotic thing called a boneyard. God, that child lives in some dream world, Miss McCarthy remarked. Not all hyenas were quite so benign. As an adult, my brother Duncan once woke up in the dead of night with a heavy animal on top of him. Still half asleep, he put his hands on the rough, wiry head and patted it, Get off me, Sammy, you stupid dog, he groaned sleepily. A fetid, warm breath enveloped him, and immediately he was awake and alert. There, looking down at him, in the moonlight, was a huge hyena, its watery yellow eyes sizing him up, its mouth slobbery with spittle. The animal already had his sleeping bag in his mouth and began to drag him away into the bush. Jesus Christ, get the fuck off me, he shouted, beating the beast on the head with his fists once he had managed to extricate his arms from the tight sleeping bag. Alarmed by his noise and beating fist, the animal dropped him (laughs) and sloped off, giggling and whooping. Picking himself up, Duncan grabbed his torn sleeping bag and staggered back into his camp bed. Looking over in amazement at his still-sleeping hunting companion, Angus Black, he shrugged and went back to sleep. Unsurprisingly, Angus didn't believe Duncan when he related the tale over breakfast. It was easy to forget that the bush was teeming with dangerous wildlife and it beggar's belief that more people weren't killed. I do remember with morbid fascination when one of the more infamous, albeit eccentric, couples, Nigel and Corona Thornycroft, both of whom were avid hunters and conservationists and fearless to the point of lunacy, came staggering back into camp, covered in blood, their clothes tattered and torn. Corona was shoeless, but wearing socks, now matted in burrs and blackjacks and mud. But I'll narrate what my father said when he wrote the story, as written by Woody back in the late 1980s, more than 20 years after the event, and published in the Hunter magazine. Buffalo and Birdshot It was the second last day of a successful two-week hunt in the Zambezi Valley. The last of 16 buffalo, four elephant, numerous impala, kudu, and two zebra and a warthog had been felled without wounding. So Gary von Memmety, Norman Travers and myself bundled up all the camp's visitors and kids and set off for a good bream pool to supplement the camp's pot with some fish. On the way, we put up a huge flock of guinea fowl. This was too much for Nigel, one of our visitors who was by far the best 12 bore shot I have ever known. As he set off with his purdy, he stopped and with difficulty persuaded his wife Corona to tag along. Fortunately, as it happens, with her gun. After about an hour of fishing, we heard, apart from the odd shot, suddenly a barrage of shots. Bang, 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 bang! We didn't think too much about it, as guinea fowl in those days were unlimited. However, at sundown, we set off in the direction from where we had heard the shots. We travelled about one kilometre when we came upon our friends in a pretty bad shape, cut and bruised. On inquiring what had happened, Nigel, in his very English accent, said... We've just been attacked by a jolly old wounded buffalo. Upon arriving at the scene, sure enough, there lay a dead bull. They told us the story of what had happened. Walking through the grass and bush about 20 yards apart, bagging birds as they flew up, Corona spotted the buffalo bull at quite close range and yelled a warning to Nigel, whereupon a charge straight at his spouse, hitting him at full speed, sending his gun flying and broken in two pieces. The bull then proceeded to shake and gore Nigel like a terrier with a rat. He managed to pull his torso close against the beast's face to avoid the points of the horns, with his legs hugging around its neck. Amongst much-shouted instructions like, Shoot it in the eyes, darling! Corona, with her gun and with courage, came around to the left side and proceeded to pump double shots of number six into the bull's shoulder at point-blank range. Ten shots did the trick. On examining the carcass, we found an old gunshot wound in the back leg which had given him a mean attitude to life, but was no handicap to attack. The lesson in this account is never to hunt alone, even after guinea fowl. Had Corona gone fishing with the rest of us, the ending would have been a lot more tragic. As it happened, Nigel suffered three broken ribs and a collarbone, not to mention a face that looked as though it had gone ten rounds with Mike Tyson. But being a tough old bird of 53, he soon recovered. If there is another hunter, male or female, who has killed a bull buffalo with birdshot, I would like to hear it. Written by John Wood, Mesitwi Farm and Burui and Bukwiz in the 1980s. One can just hear Nigel shouting in that wonderful English accent, bloody hurry up, darling, I can hardly hold the damn thing off me much longer. Good heavens, groaned Nigel, as he eased himself out from under the dead animal. We don't have a buffalo in our bag. How on earth are we going to explain this to the national parks? When Nigel finally staggered back into camp, his appearance hardly raised an eyebrow. Looking up from their deck chairs on seeing the bedraggled pair, one of the hunters simply remarked, I suppose this means we won't have any fowl for supper tonight. Nigel and Corona were brave, but they were also lucky. And no matter how experienced you were as a hunter, tragedy did occasionally strike, sometimes quite out of the blue. The hunters were always on foot and often traced many miles from camp in what is known as Jesse Bush, a thick, virtually impenetrable thorn scrub common to the Zambezi Valley so thick as the vegetation that visibility is reduced to only a few yards at best. Ideal country for the Cape Buffalo. Woody's old pal, Gary von Mamety was an avid hunter with a particular penchant for elephants. He loved the challenge and had made quite a name for himself as one of the country's premier big-game hunters. In the early days, Gary would often accompany my dad on these hunting trips. Later in life, as world opinion swung away from the slaughter of elephants, as wildlife stocks in Africa began to diminish and, in some cases, were driven to extinction, Gary became an elephant conservationist. Always armed with his 458 Winchester magnum, he would take tourists, movie stars, and national park officials deep into the African bush, showing them and teaching them about wildlife. They say an elephant never forgets, and in a tragic stroke of bitter irony, on one excursion in the Jesse bush, Gary was charged and killed by an enraged female elephant, which pierced his heart with its tusk. Gary died instantly, He had no time to react, nor any chance to survive. However, what happened next made the story a thing of legend. His party of guests and the National Park's guide watched as the herd of elephants surrounded Gerry's limp body and throughout the night would let neither man nor beast anywhere near him trumpeting and flailing their trunks. They would drive off predators attracted by the smell of blood. It was like they were trying to protect him. Not once, as it's often the case, did they kneel down and gore the body. Honestly, I think that the matriarch elephant that killed Gary not only knew who he was, but in some strange, weird way felt that it needed to protect this man who had spent so many years in the bush hunting them down. Surely then the elephant would have hated Gary, one wonders. Hate? Respect? Who knows, the guide replied. But you can bet your bottom dollar that at some stage the scent of Gary triggered something in that elephant's brain. Had Gary tried to shoot it once upon a time? He shrugged in that lovely African way. Maybe, hey, but we'll just never know. By daybreak, the herd finally and silently disappeared into the scrub and the guide was able to retrieve Gary's body. At the funeral, Robert Louis Stevenson's haunting requiem was read to the packed congregation. Ending with the line, so apt for Gary. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. If you found that episode interesting, you can listen to the third and final part of Hunting, Shooting, Fishing, coming up soon. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.